Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist's News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Kat Arney and Mira Senthalingam, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, how scientists at Stanford University have created the world's smallest letters. And the researchers are particularly pleased with this achievement because it was Stanford scientists that first created the world's smallest writing back in 1985, but they lost their crown in 1990 to IBM, who famously arranged xenon atoms to spell out the company's name. Well, now they have their record back. How understanding the genome of a hardy African crop could help to feed the world... And in order to uncover the secrets to its versatility and hardiness, researchers who are in Munich have analysed the whole sorghum genome. And this is the first time that the genome of a plant of African origin has actually been sequenced. So lots of useful information there. And how gallium nitride-based LED lights could provide clean drinking water wherever it's needed, as well as slashing household lighting bills. We're aiming to be 12 times as efficient as a tungsten light bulb and we're aiming to be three times as efficient as a low-energy light bulb you can go out and buy now. Already they're more efficient than a low-energy light bulb. Plus, we'll be hearing about an astounding discovery in a cave in South Africa which could cast some light on how our ancestors lived. There's a cave system called the Vondervak and it has been found that human beings were intentionally living in this cave some two million years ago, which is quite amazing. That's all on the way. Now, in a true piece of science detective work, researchers at the Laboratoire de Physique Statistique in Paris have found another reason why we have fingerprints. It's been known for a while that the distinctive ridges on the pads of our fingers help us to grip things. But now, Julian Schieber and colleagues have shown that fingerprints also help us to feel fine textures and tiny, tiny objects less than 200 nanometers across through vibrations. Now, writing in the journal Science, they developed a special mechanical sensor which is fitted with a rubbery cap to act a bit like an artificial fingertip. Using either very smooth caps or ones ridged to simulate fingerprints, they rubbed their artificial finger across finely textured surfaces. They found that the cap with a fingerprint was actually made to vibrate by the contact at a frequency somewhere in the region of 250 hertz. That's 250 vibrations per second. This coincides with the sensitive range of a type of nerve endings found in the skin called the Persinian corpuscles. Now, there are two types of nerve ending that are known to be involved in detecting texture. There's some slow-reacting nerves which are responsible for identifying the relatively coarse textures, and they detect different pressures at different places on the skin. But the fine details are reported by these Persinian nerve endings. Now, they've only tested this so far with a series of straight parallel ridges, so not exactly the same as the swirly lines of our fingerprints, but their findings suggest that our fingerprints actually fine-tune these vibrations, selectively amplifying certain frequencies to ensure that our nerves can pick up fine details. Intriguing stuff. And keeping with the theme of nanotechnology this week, researchers at Stanford University in the States have managed to write the smallest letters ever, assembled from subatomic particles just 0.3 nanometers in size. And the researchers are particularly pleased with this achievement because it was Stanford scientists that first created the world's smallest writing back in 1985, but they lost their crown in 1990 to IBM, who famously arranged xenon atoms to spell out the company's name. Well, now they have their record back. But how 
how did they do it? Well, the researchers encoded the letters S and U, standing for Stanford University, by using the interference pattern of electron waves on the surface of a film of copper. Now, the technique actually projects a tiny little hologram of the letters, which can only be seen using a very powerful microscope. And writing about their work in the journal Nature Nanotechnology, the Stanford team's letters are more than four times smaller than those IBM initials, and they were created using a scanning tunnelling microscope, which is used to push individual atoms around. And what the scientists did was they used it to put individual molecules of carbon monoxide into a special pattern on a film of copper that's about the size of a fingernail. Now, electrons are constantly whizzing around on the copper because it's metal. That's what electrons like to do in metals. And because electrons can act as waves, as well as what we know they're traditionally viewed as particles, but the electron waves get shaped by the carbon monoxide, pretty much like if you imagine a pond with stones sticking up in it and you make a ripple, those ripples will be will be disturbed by the stones in the pond. And so you get interference patterns with these electron waves. And this depends on the position of the carbon monoxide molecules on the surface of the copper. So eventually they create a consistent pattern that can basically be read like a hologram. Now this does all sound pretty nerdy, but the, uh, the technique could be very important for the future of computing because it enables information to be stored at a much higher density than is currently available. It was thought that you could have sort of one bit per atom, one piece of information per atom. But this is actually uh, enables you to store more information. For example, the researchers could create different holograms on the same chip by using different electron wavelengths. And this increases the amount of information you can store and pushes it way beyond our current boundaries of computing power. That's really impressive. And I thought the smallest letters ever were ones written by school children to pen pals that they didn't want. <laughs> Anyway, another bit of research this week is showing that reed warblers have found that mob rule can avoid being cuckolded by cuckoos. Now, cuckoos live a very parasitic lifestyle. They lay their eggs in the nests of other birds, letting those other birds spend their time and resources bringing up their young. From an evolutionary perspective, it's a very good trick if you can get away with it. But if you're the victim, then you're wasting your own resources on somebody else's DNA. Writing in Current Biology, Cambridge University researcher Nick Davis reports on how reed warblers use mobbing techniques to try and keep the parasitic cuckoos away from their nests. Mobbing is, however, a very risky strategy. It's very energy intensive and it exposes you to predators. It may not even prevent the cuckoo from getting through. Worse still, sometimes these reed warblers mistakenly mob a sparrow hawk, which looks a little bit like a cuckoo, but the worse, worse than that, it actually feeds on reed warblers, so a really big mistake. Now, you'd think that some birds would just save their energy and they just reject any eggs that don't look like their own. But the cuckoos have evolved to be able to lay mimic eggs, which actually look the same as the reed warblers. So this establishes kind of an evolutionary arms race between parasite and host. So what they did was place model cuckoos near the reed warblers' egg-bearing nests. And then Davis and colleagues could observe how the warblers attempted to defend their nests. About half of the time, the warblers became aggressive and did this mobbing behaviour. And in the high-risk areas, this mobbing behaviour made them far less likely to be subject to a cuckoo visit than their more peaceful neighbours. But significantly, in areas where the warblers were at lower risk, so there were fewer cuckoos around, they were actually far less likely to show the mobbing behaviour. In fact, in those areas, mobbing was actually likely to attract cuckoos in rather than scare them away. 
Reed Wobblers were also shown to reserve this mobbing behaviour only for cuckoos, so not for any other predator, not for any other pest, showing that they adapt their nest defence strategy according to their conditions, which is actually very much like our own human military intriguing stuff from the world of cuckoos and uh, and now another sort of natural world story which is related to climate change which is having a very big impact on food supplies now for example if climate changes in a major crop growing region it may not be possible to grow the crops that grow there normally anymore so scientists are investigating whether people who live in very dry regions that are only getting drier can grow alternatives to wheat and other food crops now one such alternative is a plant called sorghum and this is a type of grass that originally came from africa and it grows really well under hot and dry conditions. So farmers in warm parts of the Americas, Asia and Europe are growing sorghum for food, animal fodder, as well as using it in biofuels. And you can also burn the stuff to provide energy. Now, this sounds like an all-round wonder plant. Uh, Brilliant stuff. And in order to uncover the secrets to its versatility and hardiness, researchers who are in Munich have analysed the whole sorghum genome. And this is the first time that the genome of a plant of African origin has actually been sequenced. So lots of useful information there. And they published their results in the latest issue of the journal Nature. And the scientists say that their results will help us to understand more about how plants like sorghum resist drought and high temperatures and could help with the development of hardier versions of other crops in the future. Also, this new data is going to enable researchers to compare the genome of sorghum with rice and maize. These are two really important crop plants that have had their genome sequenced already. So this will tell us a lot about how crop plants evolve and the genes that give them their specific properties. And it does seem that we're going to need to know this sort of information if we are going to tackle with a changing climate and make sure we still have enough food. Absolutely. Also in the news this week, a new way to make light-emitting diodes, that's LEDs, and this could slash household lighting bills and help to make clean drinking water accessible to everybody. Professor Colin Humphreys from the University of Cambridge uh, joins us now on the line. Hi, Colin. Hi. So tell us a bit more about this. What's the new thing here? We've had LEDs for a long time. They are already turning up in torches, in home lighting. But what's the new method that you've got? Okay, so they are, they've been around for some time. They're in torches, as you say. They're not really in home and office lighting, and the reason is they're too expensive. So all the LEDs you can buy in the shops now are grown on a sapphire substrate, and sapphire is quite expensive. And what we've done is to develop a method for growing these LEDs on a silicon substrate. And, in fact, we're growing on a 6-inch silicon wafer instead of on a 2-inch sapphire wafer, and that's going to bring the cost down by a factor of 10 or so, a really big reduction. Wow. And these LEDs are very energy efficient, I understand. How would it compare in terms of, say, compared to a normal incandescent light bulb? Yeah, no, they're very energy efficient. And, you know, the global warming article you just had a few minutes ago, they're really going to help global warming. In fact, they'll help it perhaps much more than wind power will. So in terms of an incandescent light bulb, a tungsten light bulb, we're aiming to be 12 times as efficient as a tungsten light bulb. And we're aiming to be three times as efficient as a low energy light bulb you can go out and buy now. Already, they're more efficient than a low energy light bulb. Wow. And is that for the same brightness as well? And that's for, us, for the same brightness, absolutely. And, uh, and we want to really make them better quality and better bright light than, than, than the low-energy light bulbs, which, as you know, are not very popular. In fact, they're the biggest cause of divorce in the country, now I'm told, low-energy light bulbs. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't realise that. Well, so hopefully your gallium nitride LED lights won't be a cause of divorce. But I've also heard that these could help to make clean drinking water accessible to people. I understand that what you can do with these is make ultraviolet light. 
That's right. So um, the light emission from, from the gallium nitride, you actually have to add some indium to it to get visible light emission. If you add aluminium, you can get deep ultraviolet. Now, ultraviolet, deep ultraviolet of a certain wavelength, it's about 270 nanometers. It destroys the nucleic acid in both DNA and RNA, and it stops uh, viruses and bacteria from reproducing. So it effectively kills them. So if we can make LEDs that emit this deep UV, we can kill all known viruses, all known bacteria, and you could put a ring of these LEDs on the inside of a water pipe coming into a home, say in the third world, and you could just, water which is you know, riddled with bacteria and viruses, you can make it harmless. And also it'd be useful, of course, for our country as well, but you know, particularly for, for third world people. And of course we could use them in hospitals as well to ensure that things are sterile without having to go through the sort of chemical cleansing that we do now. As they are so efficient, does this mean that we could set this up with, say, a solar panel and actually make this water purification very portable? Absolutely. So that, that's absolutely right. So these are very efficient. They'll run off four volts, which is ideal for a solar panel. So you can have a solar panel, a battery connected as well, if you like, and then have these connected to that. And you'll have, them for, you'll have these for lighting in the developing world, but also for water purification in the developing world. Well, these sound really fantastic, actually. But what's different about gallium nitride that enables us to make this seemingly wider range of frequencies? If we can make UV that we couldn't before, why is gallium gallium nitride so special? Well, gallium nitride is called a wide band gap semiconductor. And if, before it came along, the only light emission we could get from semiconductors was in, in the infrared and in the red and rather weakly in the green and the yellow. Because sil- well, silicon doesn't emit light anyway, but gallium arsenide emits light and, and indium phosphide, but they're, they're narrow band gap materials. This has a much wider band gap. So gallium nitride itself emits in the near ultraviolet. And then there's another material called indium nitride, which emits in the infrared. If you mix those two materials together, you can get any energy you want from the near-infrared going right through the visible spectrum to the near-ultraviolet. If you add some aluminium to it, you can go really into deep ultraviolet. So this is a new material system. It's man-made. It can cover this range of the electromagnetic spectrum that we've never had before from a a solid-state semiconductor. This really does sound quite incredible. When should we expect to see these on the market? So for the home and office lighting, scientists always predict the things that are going to happen before they happen. I think within the next five years, certainly, maybe two or three years. The UV problem is more difficult to to solve. We've already got the right uh, wavelength to be emitted, but the intensity at the moment is too low. So we've got to push up that intensity. I think realistically that may be five to ten years, but I really believe it's going to happen then. Well, clearly getting fresh, clean, drinkable water to everybody in the world is still a challenge, and I suspect, unfortunately, it will still be a challenge in those five to ten years. So good luck. I hope that we get them to the market as soon as possible, not least because I'd like to see my own electricity bill slashed a bit. But thank you ever so much for joining us. That was Professor Colin Humphreys explaining how a new way of making gallium nitride LEDs could see dramatic cuts in home electricity bills, as well as providing cheap, clean water wherever it's needed. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. Also this week, new evidence from an old cave could cast light on how our ancestors survived two million years ago, as Mira Senthalingam found out when she spoke to Kelvin Kem. There's a cave system called the Vondervaak cave system, and it is in rocks that are two billion years old, some of the oldest rock on Earth. 
The cave itself has been dated at 2 million years old, which is more than twice as old as the oldest other cave in Spain, which has been dated about 800,000 years ago, where it was known that people intentionally lived in caves. So what this means now is it has been found that human beings were intentionally living in this cave some 2 million years ago, which is quite amazing. Very big, by the way. It's 2,500 square meters. It's, it's quite sizable. If you look at pictures of it, you can drive a double-decker bus into the parts of the cave. And uh, the depth of the sediment that's in the cave is some six meters. They've dug down now through the six meters and found nine layers that go right back as far now as two million years. And at the two million years ago level, tools have been found and uh, indication of the intentional use of fire and such like. Now, what's interesting is that the humidity in the area is so low that the amount of water precipitation inside this cave is one millimeter per year. In other words, there's like nothing in there. So this is why it's been so dry for so long. It's also clearly the case that the tools were left there and not washed there. The cave is in fact about 140 meters deep, but it's horizontal into the rocks. Therefore, there's been no water flow over the years, so these materials couldn't have washed down to the bottom. Now, what tools have they actually found down there? Oh, there's primitive hand axes, and there's also some uh, ornamental stones as well that have got some shaped uh, lines on them. So there's sort of artwork, so to speak, on some of these very old stones that have been found down there. Which of our ancestors is thought to have lived here? It appears to be Homo habilis. Now, there were numbers of different types of pre-humans that were living at the time. And, of course, the Homo sapiens, which is us, which is the one that won out at the end of the day. What else has managed to have been learned from the findings in this cave? Something that is very interesting is that hand axes were found in the cave that were dated to 270,000 years ago, which is when they were last being made there. However, they continued to be made in East Africa up to 130,000 years ago and in Europe 40,000 years ago. Meantime, in South Africa, the technology had moved on to what they call convergent points. This is like a more modern uh, arrowhead where two sides are cut to make a point. So what it now indicates is that, in fact, the technology of the making of tools originated here in South Africa and moved from South Africa up into Europe and then was refined to a great degree in Europe. Previously, it was thought that the technology was developed there and then moved back down to Africa and elsewhere, but that appears not to be the case now. Moving now from land to sea, it seems that bees could be helping out the fish farming industry. Absolutely. There's been the most interesting development here by a couple of scientists, Paul Collett and Ernest Thompson, who both of them, in fact, have an interest in beekeeping, but are both trained in aquaculture. What they've found is a black sticky substance that bees put around the entrance to their hives. It's called propolis, pro from the Greek in front and polis from the Greek word for city. So in front of the city, it's a protection at the gate. It's a black sticky stuff and the bees actually collect it from plants. When plants get damaged like by insects or wounded in some way, the plants produce little scabs. These little scabs defend the plant against bacteria and, and other pathogens that could harm the plant. Now, the bees have found this out, and the bees collect this stuff and roll it up in little balls and carry it back to the hive. And this stuff has got antifungal and anti-yeast and antibacterial properties. So they build a, an entrance protection at the hive, and also if there's any cracks or holes in the hive, 
the bees seal this up with this propolis. Why is this useful to the fish industry? What are the problems with farming fish? The uh, fish farming business is big money all over the world. However, the fish are, are very vulnerable when they're in the form of eggs and larvae. Of course, if you lose a number, then it can affect your profitability substantially. They've traditionally used certain antifungals that have been artificially manufactured in factories. But a lot of laws and standards around the world have been passed to ban the use of some of these traditional antifungals. Now, these two fellows have found out that this propolis from the beehives can be converted into chemicals that can be used now in the aquaculture business and seem to be producing results just as good, if not better, than the traditional medicines that were being used in the, um, in the aquaculture business. They've actually manufactured a product now which is on sale. It's called Spielmann's Corp Biobalsam. Now, interestingly, the propolis itself has already been used in products as diverse as toothpaste, lip balm, and chewing gum. So it's been indicated as very safe for human consumption. There's no problem in using it in the, with the water and for fish. And it's working. So they look as if they're onto a good thing. Maybe it'll spread all over the world and become a, a really amazing product. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. Well, that's all we have for this week. Thank you ever so much for listening. This Naked Scientist News Flash featured Kat Arney, Colin Humphreys, Kelvin Kem and Mira Senthalingam and was produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed this News Flash, why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where we bring you the latest in science news, interviews with top scientists, your questions and a kitchen science experiment to try at home each week. We'll be back with another roundup of great science next week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.